So how do we see the forest for the trees? North America's forests have been cultivated and manipulated by peoples for thousands of years. But it's only been since the 19th century that the U.S. and Canada have viewed their vast softwood forests as industrial commodities, namely because of the massive newspaper industry that developed during that century. In our new digital age, is it possible to rehabilitate our relationships with the forest as an ecosystem? Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margot, And I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of Season 3, and subscribe to get notified every time we post. What's up, folks? Hello. It's Baba Yaga time. Baba Yaga! This week it's my turn to talk about trees. Nice. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> it's gonna be great. We're gonna try. You're gonna talk all about trees in the Americas. Well. Well. I'm gonna talk North about it in North America. America. <laughs> Sorry, South America. I just I don't, I don't really know. We can't cover everything. <laughs> so yeah. Um, let's let's talk about trees, baby. Um, we we've got uh so essentially like right before con contact with Europeans, we uh, there's a very different from in Europe conception of land and people's like place in it and the other creatures and things that exist on the land. So um, what we're going to talk about, I'm going to sort of focus on um, Eastern North America, just to talk about like the ideology and things that are rolling around there. Yeah, because my episode focused a lot on like, we do not cut down forest because it will anger the fairies, leshy, nymphs, gods, whatever. But it seems that that is not necessarily what's going on in North American ideas. So when we're looking at um, a sort of pre-contact idea of creation, right, we have a different cosmology, a different idea of humanity's place in the world and a different way that the natural and sort of like supernatural work mm -hmm. um especially since this ideology up until right europeans show up does not have this major shift with like the introduction of christianity right. where fairies and everything sort of get removed into this like other realm so with this conception of like the creation story um the creator you know makes the world and all of the animals and then um and then a person is created. And there's a bunch of different ways that this happens. Mostly in um, Eastern North America, it's one of the earth diver stories, um, which means that, like, right, all the animals are, like, living in water, and then a person falls down, and they don't, they can't, like, live on the water. Um, and it's, it's usually a woman, uh, 
like falls into the water and like a turtle is like, you can hang out on my back. And she's like, this isn't big enough. And so like varying animals will like dive down and get land. And then they, they bring the earth back up and they build the earth on the back of the turtle. Right. And the woman lives there and she's like stolen seeds and keeps them in her hair. And then she plants them in the thing. Anyway, so the, the animals and the plants and everything exist before people do. Yes. And that creates an understanding that is a little bit different from the like hierarchy that exists in the Christian story. Right. So people are supposed to learn from the animals, from the plants and animals. Right. Um, because they've been around for longer and they would know more. Right. Um, Rather than like, Humans are created last because we have dominion over all of this and are partners in creation. It's, you're last because you have stuff to learn. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not like you're last because of that, but like that because you are last, there's a lot of things that you have to learn. And so, and there's not this separation that happens in the, like the Middle Ages between, or I guess even earlier than that, between people and like the the human created world and the yeah. world of nature it's all one thing and so right right so there isn't yeah there isn't this concept of like nature versus humanity it's just like humans are part of the world and all of these other beings are also part of your society right and so right it's which I think in a pre-Christian world is how a lot of, like, Europeans think about things where... Sort of. Like, it depends where we're talking about. Like, if you look at antiquity, right? Like, well, yeah, humans but like, are still, like, especially in, like, the Mediterranean world, like, even pre-Christianity, it's very much, like... Yes, obviously nature has its place, more like but, like... Celtic. Yeah, if you look at, like, <laughs> Celtic stuff... If, you're looking, if we're talking, like, Northern Europe, particularly Celtic... Yes. Scandinavian kind of deals where, like, you're a part of, like, a larger system. Yeah. It... Whatever. We can cut this whole part out. Oh, no, no. We can... (laughs) We can... We can talk about it, like, real quick. Just, like, yeah. I think, like, to an extent, yes, but there's still... I I think... I think the way that you're talking about it, right, with North America, where Mm -hmm. it is, like, you're fully in this system, is still quite different from, like, conceptions of, say, like, fairies or, like in celtic mythology right or like conceptions of like trolls and like those kinds of creatures in scandinavian folklore where there is this like humans do like they're and i think this is part of why like christianity often was able to kind of be superimposed onto this Mm -hmm. so easily because there's already this concept of like humans are different like humans are not fairies they're not trolls they aren't like these creatures who live like in complete harmony with nature or whatever. Like there is, I think from an earlier point, like a certain amount of like, yeah. So I don't know. Really we are want removed. To use the like terms like, Oh, we're living well, in complete yeah. harmony. Cause I'm like, not that's also like, not, yeah, it's not like the best, but like vibe either. So, but I think like there, there's more, there's more antagonism towards like okay. the natural world, even in, pre-christian like northern europe there's still right this idea of like 
we are separate. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, we have nature spirits that are part of nature. We're, like, not quite. Okay. We're special and different. Right. Yeah, so that's not... I mean... There is, like, the idea that humans are, like, special, that humans have their own sort of societies, but it is part of a larger integration and ideology with, like, yeah. all of the plants and everything. And that's why a lot of the figures that in, like, the histories, right, and the, the stories and the wisdoms of... Um, the peoples of North America, it's it's not right that like a fairy protects the woods or a whatever. Um, you might be like learning stories from the embodiment of a particular animal, right? Like right. the beaver or coyote or what have you. Um, right. And those creatures have a sort of like personality within the like larger cosmos yeah um and there are like supernatural beings because the natural world and the spirit world can overlap in some instances and so there might be great like spirits or like ghost-like figures or right um creatures that are not actual like literal animals yeah that also do things um but it's not like it's not really like fairies a lot of things are closer to you know it's like coyote um and things like that or like the wendigo which normally comes from like a person doing something and ending up as like this evil spirit that eats other people yeah Um, so like closer to like i don't know like a vampire right yeah and like something bad like this person did something bad or something bad happened to them and they become this like yeah unnatural or a spirit thing becomes like so and there's like a lot of um like Japanese ghost stories, yeah. right? Where like you, uh, something happens to a spirit, and then they become kind of like tormented, and they become whatever this yes. s- supernatural thing is. It's sort of like those kind of vibes, or something yeah. happens to an animal, and they become like tormented. The, the spirit is not right in some way not balanced in some way it can become these things so it's not like oh we can't cut down these specific trees because of this it's more the like vibe of everyone and that like all of our as we talked about before if you are part of a community or nation or whatever that the decisions that you're making take into account all of the like living organisms within the boundaries that your people are in control of right so your nation um but again like i said it's not this idea of like oh we're just like perfectly in tune with nature and like there's no sort of like construction of any kind oh yeah to to be clear i'm not trying to no no no, i'm not saying that you are i'm just saying like this is a a conception that people not from 
indigenous societies in North America have, um, where from certain writings, mostly from the 19th century, but there are a lot of writings that come from the period of contact where people are talking about, like, oh, this virgin untouched land just in its natural state. And that's not what North America was. It was a fully, like, human-constructed space. Right. Um, So, right, in the sort of, like, Iroquois-dominated area... You have this semi-permanent lifestyle that we've talked about before, where villages would move every 10 to 20 years. Um, Essentially, when within the certain walking distance radius outside of the village that had been cleared, going in to get fuel, it becomes harder and harder to find like easily available fuel fuel yes so once that happens um you have to move to somewhere else so that that part of the land can sort of like heal itself yeah makes sense but there were also other spaces where the like forest or whatever had been like cleared even more and there are spaces sort of around these villages where um, undergrowth would be completely cleared out. Controlled burning would be used to clear out undergrowth so that it would encourage more large game to come into those areas of the forest. Right. And then things would be strategically planted or palisades built to sort of funnel game together right. to be hunted. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so when Europeans show up, they talk about like walking through these huge forests with these big trees, but they're like, you can just ride a horse through it. Yeah. Right. And that is not a natural state. Horses, it's really hard to get through just like a totally unmanaged forest because yes. the undergrowth is just like, you can't just stroll through it. Yeah. And there's like writings about Europeans who are like, Oh, this is like so magical. There's just like so many like berry bushes like lining the paths. What a beautiful natural landscape. And then like every indigenous person is there like yeah, <laughs> How dare I, you? I, I did planted that. On that. Purpose. <laughs> yeah. No, the berry bushes do not just just happen to grow along this like wide open pathway <laughs> like on either side so yeah, nicely. No, it's a road. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. so yeah, so there's while there's like a different sort of uh end game in what the constructed world will look like right we're not like building massive things out of stone we're not plowing huge swaths of field and planting monocultures yeah um it is a constructed and and the entire continent is structured and managed like the grasslands that we think of as like the plains and the prairies while they were cleared and flat like trees used to grow there and stuff um those are in to a certain degree constructed by people other grasslands had been constructed by people to again assist with like bison hunts and things like that all of this stuff was was carefully managed by centuries and centuries of indigenous communities moving through the space and you know managing whatever cultural practices they have for that particular space which is different north america is like wildly different uh, ecology across the continent um but this construction in terms of what one would think of in europe 
obviously comes along with colonialism. Um, And one of the other things that comes with colonialism is uh, the idea of how to build a national identity. This is how we're going to get into sort of talking about what... um, how we really commodify trees. So we had this like sort of um, larger spiritual ideological landscape that didn't have these firm, hard boundaries between a village and forest, right? right? You know, it was just like these boundaries were constantly being moved around and negotiated. Like we've talked about with boundaries happening um, in terms of like national boundaries, for indigenous communities well once we have real colonization happening yeah these boundaries are built up between right forest and town forest and farm forest and whatever and also like what this hard boundaries for like nations so we have like the boundaries between the u.s and canada um the boundaries between the u.s and indigenous nations and then eventually the u.s just steamrolling over those boundaries and being like you're not a nation anymore yes things like that um and also the ways that uh colonial people um constructed an idea of what their nation was going to be and how they did that so we'll sort of roll into that now um And in early sort of colonial North America, we've talked about this before, obviously, um, the early contact when there wasn't a whole lot of like actual settlers was a super traumatic and awful time for indigenous people um, because by about 10 to 15 years, um, sort of ahead of white people came plagues just like rounds and rounds of plagues it was awful yeah um and tons and tons of people died and this sort of feeds into this idea that the spaces that uh north america was not a sort of humanly constructed environment because there just seemed to not be so many people and people that could manage right to there were it didn't seem that there was enough people to manage like large forest management systems right but there yeah. there had been but you know when a, a population is decimated yeah i mean so, like we talked about with the plague like yeah exactly the, the entire 14th century really in yeah. europe same deal like people just could not manage the landscape the way they once had because so i mean at that point what like 50 percent, if not more of the population had died and that's like as compared to what like in north america isn't it estimated that it was like up to 90 percent of yeah. people it's literally that, decimated. Like, literal. Well, I think I thought decimation was one in ten. Yeah. So if ninety percent of no people one are in dead, ten people survive. Oh, okay. I got confused. Sorry, everyone. But <laughs> the yeah, like obviously people cannot maintain the landscape in the way they once had when like you know literally one out of every ten people is left alive. Yeah. So it was a. Not a great time. And as, like, colonial settlements are developed and built up, um, mostly how people are interacting with the forest is to clear off some land and mostly to stay away from it. Because, again, we have this conception of the forest as being a dangerous place. And people are mostly harvesting um, hardwoods um, to use as lumber. 
and fencing and to build tools and plows and carts and things like that. You want hardwoods for this that are going to be like sturdy and last a long time. Um, And we're building up imagined communities with this new, for the time, relatively new uh, technology of the printed page, essentially. So... Especially with, like, the war for independence and these ideas of, like, what does it mean to be an American, um, the printed political tract and what becomes the newspaper was really, really important. Right. But in these early times, um, paper was a product that had nothing at all to do with trees. Yeah. No. <laughs> so um, we can go back sort of into Europe just for a little bit to talk about like how this technology of information developed, um, because this is really super important to how uh, colonial North America um, and then later like the U.S. and Canada really th- starts to think about the forests that exist on this continent. Right. So the everybody when we talk about like oh the the information technology and these massive like things that changed point to Gutenberg and the like movable type press and that is really important but just as if not more important is the development of paper and the arrival of paper technologies to Europe because you have to have enough of something to print on. And before that, people were using um, parchment and like papyrus and things yes. like that. And, and parchment is made from animal skins. Yeah. Like, we're not talking parchment papers in like what you use to line a baking sheet. No, like now. Actual we're talking parchment. Like, yes, which is like great. I killed so, this like, sheep and I'm using its skin to write on. Yeah, it's a very, very thin, stretched out skin. And it's great. That's actually what the U.S. Constitution is written on and why we still have these copies that can be displayed of it because it'll last forever. Mm-hmm. But there's also only so many sheeps that you can kill and skin and make parchment from. Um, so while you can print much more quickly with a printing press and with movable type, you need something to print on. And so from... Asia comes these technologies of uh, making rag stock, which is taking rags and fibers from like woven fibers, essentially, and beating them down into water until you have a pulp and then smooshing that out into a sheet and drying it. And then that becomes paper. And this is how people make paper and printed text up until the 19th century. Um, and these are really, really important, right? When we talk about like the development of the Americas, everything is like, because people are writing these like sensational enlightenment texts, right? You've got like common yep. sense, Thomas Paine and all of, uh, political tracts. Yeah. Like the every... sons of Liberty are like printing yeah. all of these things. And from these things come, newspapers which at this point right are made very locally and by individual printers and they have like max a full reading public of about 
a thousand people yeah right for each little newspaper or political track that is made it's like about a thousand people and then you know other printers might like reprint things that are like a big sensation like the common sense or any of the other like major the federalist papers right. these kinds of things and so people get them sort of all over um the colonies but they're not at the scale of when we think about a newspaper yeah no what it is like the new york times right yeah, it's not Which are millions of people reading everywhere it. because there's only so much rag stock that you can get and they're being made it takes three people doing this like really intensive labor to make rag stock paper yeah um and each press is having to make one big square like sheet of type and then press it by hand yeah um so that's it's super labor intensive and super resource intensive and there's always sort of this the desire for printed text is always far surpassing the amount of rag stock that people can get. So this was a very like circular based economy, right? You would grow the fibers, make the cloth, the cloth would wear out. Then someone would come around your town collecting all of the rags and then take it back to the paper makers and they would, you know, Rag have somebody, shop. yeah, have somebody who's like breaking it up and then you know putting it on the mold and decal, and then somebody who's like pressing them down mm-hmm. uh, and squeezing all of the water out between felts and hanging them up, and then somebody would take those to the print shop, and the printers would set everything up and paint their, you know, their yep. type, and then press each individual sheet. Mm-hmm. And as we've talked about before, right, like, people aren't just, like, it's not like there's, like, tons and tons of fabric being thrown away for rags, right? Like, or, like, no, this is, like, like, available, right? Because all your clothes are being made either, like, cotton, linen, or wool. Yeah, and and it's being made by, it's being woven by hand and being sewn by hand. And, like, as the 19th century comes along, right, that's one of the big sort of inventions are these... Um, industrial and steam-powered looms and the cotton gin and all of these things that are making it easier for fabric to be made, but not at such a rate that you can really get the amount of information out that people want to get out. So what happens then is uh, a couple of things. We have um, the invention, there's a couple of inventions that happen sort of around the same time in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Um, and they do take quite a while to like make their way out of Europe into North America, sort of take over even these like small areas um, on quote unquote the frontier of North America. Yeah. Um, and the first thing that I'm going to talk about is um, the which was invented by Nicolas-Louis Robert. And um, this is an automated papermaking process. Um, So it's a basically like a giant sort of wheel that combines the jobs of everyone except for the person who is going to hang up the papers to dry. So all of those people who are like, right, uh, 
you have the pulp already made from the rag, so the rag pulp made, and you feed that through this wheel that sort of presses everything out into sheets, and then you can take them and hang them to dry. So like three of these people that are into it, and it's just like you're you're able to process so much. Again, though, you're limited by the amount of rag stock that you can get in. So the other thing that happens is Friedrich Gottlob Keller, a mm-hmm. German, discovers a way to make paper from ground wood instead of rags. Because the idea, right, with the rags is what you're getting are the long strings of cellulose yes. um, in the pulp that you pull out into the suspension of water. And then when you're pressing it out, you press the water out and you just press all these long fibers of cellulose together. And so cellulose is in all sorts of plants. So any sort of sufficiently pulpy plant you can make into paper. Um, It's just wood is very hard to break down. So uh, Keller develops this way to make ground wood into rags. And then we also have Friedrich Kuning, who invents a rotating printer, which takes the same sort of idea as the foutrunier and applies it to the printing process. So you have just this wheel that can print. You don't have to have one person pressing each sheet. You can set the type and then it just rolls over and it prints hundreds of sheets in an hour. Yeah. Um, and so with all of that combined, right, you don't need the ragstock. You're not limited by ragstock. You can just go out and any, like, tree that you can reasonably break down with this process, you can then super fast press through the foudrinier and then you can start printing the hundreds of sheets, you know, super quickly. Right. And that is where the, like actual process for the newspaper comes into being and what happens then is that people realize north america is just chock full of stinking trees and especially in the the um northeast midwest of the u.s and then in quebec and ontario there are huge swaths of spruce forests um, and spruce is really good because it's a soft wood. So it yes. wasn't really been used for much before that because it's not like super great for making floors or cabinets or anything out of. Um, but it's easy to break down and turn it into pulp. And it yes. has these really long cellulose fibers. So it's super good for making into paper. So the U.S. really takes this and like runs with it because they had this huge culture of these political tracks and newspapers already. Yes. Um, and they take it and create this new economic model of the newspaper. So the newspapers start being sold for as absolutely cheaply as possible. So this is the advent of the penny press. Right. Which, um, I can't remember which newspaper man it was, said... The only reason that they're priced at a penny is because that is the smallest unit of currency in the U.S. If they had a smaller one, that's what it would be priced at. Um, And essentially how they ran the the newspapers was this was – the newspaper was a product of industrialism and a a new culture of consumption was rising up to like – unsurmounted heights in this period so they're able to profit off of 
these other systems of industrialization to fund the industrialization of the newspaper. So to sell the newspaper, to make money, right, is coming from advertising space. Yeah. So if you're, you sell space to advertisers, put the news in it, people will buy it, they'll get it for the news for less than what the actual document is worth, but they're seeing all of this, these advertisements, and that's where this, like, reader as a consumer comes in and this economic model for the new newspaper comes about. Um, and very quickly, right, the, the U.S. has all of these newspapers that spring up. Um, the Chicago Tribune is a massive one, uh, sort of second only to uh, their other subsidiary, which is the New York Daily News. The New York Times is huge. Sort of every metropolitan area had a newspaper that reached, you know, millions of people by this point. Um But they're realizing, even as early as the 1890s, that this is not sustainable. The U.S. is blowing through their forest reserves. And they're like, in the next 20 years, all of the trees that we can use to make paper are going to be gone from the U.S. We need to do something about this. Um, and And there's quotes here, too, that like they knew the importance of trees to ecological stabilization super early. I mean, there's also there's a bunch of tracks from the mid 19th century about like how burning coal is going to also cause global warming. Like people have been talking about global warming and climate change since Since. the 19th century. Um, So that's super frustrating. Um, But they were like, we have to most of the conversations are for the good of the economy. We have to make sure that we're keeping our forests okay and alive. Um, but also that we should be worried about what's going to happen to the climate if we just destroy all of the trees um, and all of these old growth forests. So what they do is start making trade deals with uh, Canada and This gets into a lot of really complex uh, systems of international trade that sort of create the whole foundation of the U.S.-Canadian relationship and the ways that uh, sort of American capitalism and Canadian uh, resource extraction sort of exist. So what, what happens is we've talked about previously that the U.S. has this system of um, very specific, like, land privatization that happened. Yes. So in the U.S., these forests are mainly on private land. Uh, People own the land and thus own the trees, and companies come in and cut the trees, and you know, it's it's all sort of um, managed privately up until we get the advent of national parks. Yeah. In Canada, it's very different. Yes. All of these, all of the trees for lumber sourcing, well, it's eighty, it's like eighty five percent of trees for lumber sourcing yeah. are located on crown lands, and the crown has management of natural resources like this on yeah. any of the lands that are like crown lands. And so there's there's a lot of 
protection in place from the get-go for lumber extraction. Um, And so you get this tension between... But also in Canada, because it's a confederation, there's a sort of difficulty between the, the crown slash federal government and what is managed by the provincial government and they're kind of not always on the same page yes um so there's some wiggling around of like what is controlled by quebec and what is controlled by the federal government or the crown because a lot of this is happening before 67 anyway well yeah also (laughs) this i mean even post 67 like it's still i mean mean, we can have this this will be my bonuses, my rant about all the people who are like, Justin Trudeau's a dictator because he had emergency powers for nine days. And I'm like, you know what seems more dictatorial to me is just executive orders, but fine. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. We're a federation. <laughs> not, we are not a republic. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna ta- the the amount of stupidity about the trucker convoy is still <laughs> blowing my mind. Anyway, well, and so things like that yeah. actually end up. I I can get into some of the stuff about the the frustrations with the Canadian politics, especially out west, and the yes. influence of the U.S. on that. Because even in this time, right, the newspapers and news that's being consumed in Canada is dominated by an American press. Yep. So what we have here, because of the way that this industrialization happens, um, it fits into this much larger narrative of American capitalism, as American history as one of political and economic hegemony. So exporting political ideas, exporting culture, exporting finished product. And then Canadian history as one of resource extraction, right? Much smaller population, um, but with vast amounts of natural resources. And the primary natural resource in this period is the forest of Quebec and Ontario for the pulp paper trade. And Americans get super American about it and become very afraid of our freedom of speech, our freedom of the press is being controlled by foreign influence, yeah. which I love. There's this wonderful quote where this the Canadian uh, minister of the here somewhere i don't remember um is very disturbed by these comments that are coming out in the american press because he's like you guys asked for a bunch of pulp paper and we delivered it to you in a timely manner for a reasonable cost and now you're telling us that this is some sort of foreign influence this is just trade and this is how having a neighboring country works and of course americans are the whole culture is so very much about yeah. um, not having any control from any sort of outside nation. You know, yeah. I will not have some queen across the sea, some king across the sea, tell me what I have to do with whatever. Sure. Um, but that they're no like trade for you either. <laughs> well, so the fear then is that yeah. right if if our press is if our press is entirely printed on foreign supplied 
pulp paper, then if we start printing anti-Canadian stuff, they're going to be like, you can't have any more paper, and then we don't have a press anymore, and then there's no freedom of the press, and our freedom of speech has been repressed. And then your First Amendment rights are not being recognized, which, I'm sorry, I do need to do the aside here, which (laughs) all the... All, all the the best and brightest in Canada complaining that my First Amendment rights are being violated because the trucker convoy got broken yes, up. Yes, and your um, the, First, the First Amendment, Amendment in is... Canada makes Manitoba a province. Yes. So for the record, Manitoba is still a province. <laughs> and, Unless uh, you are the province of Manitoba. Yes, your First Amendment rights <laughs> were not violated in yeah. Canada. But what's hilarious about this conversation, what's I think really sort of wild about it, is that this this period, so we're getting into the uh, 20th century, right? Um, the 1920s, 1930s especially. And we have these American newspaper magnates, um, you know, Pulitzer, Hearst, yeah. all of these guys, <laughs> um, are up in arms about all sorts of things, what have you. Um, yeah, so specifically we're talking about, we're going to talk about um, the newspaper are magnate, we- if you will, uh, Robert McCormick. <laughs> okay, so the... The thing that makes this even more complicated, especially the, like, rhetoric of the U.S. and these printers at this particular time, is the actual actions that are taken by some of these newspaper magnates. So we have people like Robert McCormick, who is the um, owner and editor of the Chicago Tribune, and he fully vertically integrates the Chicago Tribune. Right. But he does that using resources based in Quebec. So he buys up a bunch of land and lumberyards on the North Shore of the St. Lawrence and builds a literal factory town um, in the late 1920s called uh, Baikumu. And all of the people there are working, um, you know, cutting and processing the pulp to make pulp paper and that's then being shipped into the u.s to print all of the chicago tribune and subsidiary newspapers so this becomes like this very uh, complicated system of like resource extraction advertising and printing and a political economy across borders you know it becomes this the the newspaper economy um from extraction to reading is not one of just the u.s one of just canada it's a full continental economy um and this is what we're getting at with uh talking about any sort of like contemporary politics because this really creates a news culture that exists across the continent um, rather than like U.S. news and Canadian news. A lot of the companies that eventually write as as newspapers as a physical object become less and less common now that 
newspaper as an industrial product doesn't exist as much. Um, we've moved into a digital age and a television age. These same companies are still operating across the border. And so you have a lot of Canadian news and politics being controlled by American sources. And that's how we end up with so many Canadians, especially out in Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, where things are already culturally influenced by American migration to those spaces, um, being even more influenced by American conceptualizations of politics. Um, Because you have this industrial system that grows up, and instead of the trees and the forest of North America being viewed as, you know, these sort of larger habitats for humans, for uh, animals, which is how, like, the forest had been conceptualized for millennia before that, they are suddenly viewed as a place where trees are and for trees to become a commodity, the trees themselves, rather than the sort of products of the entire ecosystem. Um, And that's how we get this like massive and super fast deforestation of North America, Uh, even more so than just humans, you know, building up space or building up agricultural lands. It's humans building up industrialized information technologies uh, that require newsprint specifically um so who knows where this is going now but from this system of industrialized uh newspaper production we have this sort of transcontinental system of political information and our news sources um that has tied the U.S. and Canada not only into the largest sort of bilateral trade relationship that exists in the world along the largest land border that exists in the world, but it's also like culturally, if we talk about imagined communities existing from the like readership of newspapers and of, uh, media, news media like this, um, the U.S. and Canada is, as much as Canadians would not want it to be so, um, English Canada and the U.S. live in that same sort of imagined community of news and information. Yeah. So. Which, like, I wouldn't mind if people just actually, I don't know, paid attention in civic (laughs) class enough to be like... To not be citing their Miranda rights in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, so that is, uh, that's forest and North America and how we've come to not really see all of our forests for the commodities that are trees. Um, hopefully now in the digital age, we're going to be able to move back to more protected lands and build some forests back up like we talked about in the last episode. But who knows, really? I um, think we'll figure it out. But yeah, and again, as always, if you like where we're going with our season three, please check out our YouTube channel and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.